My bud, Clint. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going well, my man. How are you doing? I'm tired, but I'm doing I, I well. Feel ya. Yes, <laughs> yes, we have, we have we've reached the point of the semester here at West Lib, where um we're we're past midterm. This is when uh white hot panic is the emotion of pretty much everyone, um because it's like do or die now. And I teach upperclassmen, so if they don't do well in these classes, they got to do them again. They don't want to. So, <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, but, you know, all's well. Um, living the dream. Uh, but, yeah, we, uh, we're we here. Uh, we're, we're happy to be here. And we got an awesome guest. This is, like, the highlight of my week, by the way, because I just get to nerd out with snake people about snakes. So our, our guest this week, who we'll be talking with here shortly, is Chad Gordon of Gordon Reptiles. Um, and anybody that has is present on Facebook and any of the Calubri groups that's King Snake, Milk Snake oriented will definitely know Chad, Chad's work because uh, he definitely is Captain Lampropeltis, which is one of the reasons why I'm extremely <laughs> happy to have the episode that we're going to have tonight because we haven't had a lamp episode in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And when we had the last one, I wasn't doing all the work I do with them now, you know. And, and, and now I am, so it's going to be fun to pick Chad's brain on, on a bunch of things. And we we've, we were chatting before the episode, and we've decided we're going to go more Milk Snake than King Snake, uh, which is going to be fun. But before we do that, uh, we have our general updates, and then we're going to be adding a new section to the podcast here in a minute. So what are – I gave my updates, essentially. Um, what are your <laughs> updates, Clint? Uh, so, um, you know, I, I'll say that things have gotten a little bit – slower you know it's that time of mm-hmm. year um when it comes to you know general traffic however that means one projects get kicked in to overdrive things <laughs> like we we got water ran to our rodent rooms um new ventilation and um, um like carbon scrubbing and whatnot um mm-hmm. filtration that's what i'm looking for ventilation and filtration dumping that out so all that's been I don't even want to think about the checks I wrote to get those rodent rooms <laughs> where they where they're now at. Um, but you know, we talk about being tired, and it's like things are supposed to be settling and slowing a little bit. However, this is also hunting season. Uh, hunting season. So it's like I can't tell you how many three a.m. mornings there have been now, and we process everything ourselves. Yep. So it's yeah. I mean, I'm I'm tired. <laughs> I'm real tired, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, but it's worth it. It's uh, you know good time of the year. Yeah. Um, so you know, all in. I'm looking forward to another couple months. I, I say a couple months because I never know when I'm going to put the colubrids down. Mm-hmm. It all depends on what the weather stays like. You know, outside really. But I'm really, really looking forward to that this year. Yeah. Just so it, it's even it, that I'm not the one who's back there taking care of them most of the time. I'm looking forward to, okay, now I have that individual to do other things. <laughs> yeah, I got you. To try to take some stuff off the plate. So uh, just, you know, looking for a little bit more uh, calm from, from the storm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I feel you, buddy. I'm, I'm tired too, man. I'm tired too. But it's, it's a, it, I don't want it to be perceived as a, a whining tired. Oh, no. It's, no, no, it's no. a tired where at the end of the day you're like, okay, I did something, and now I'm going to do it again tomorrow. 
It's all things I choose to do. Yes. You know, Uh that's it. It's I don't have to hunt, but I choose to go sit. It's funny how exhausted you can be from sitting and doing nothing for hours. Uh (laughs) You know? So, but yes. uh, um, So, yeah, that's what I mean. It's it's tired, but it's all good stuff. Excellent. So, um, before we get to the new section, I do need to make one kind of plug right now uh, because I'm, I'm in the same boat you are. Um, right before I came up to campus, because I always record in my office because the internet's better here, I was walking around my collection at home, and I, I, I have a really weird weird response to brumation this year because I, I've been using the snakes as a coping mechanism to deal with an awful lot of human interactions that I've had as of late, <laughs> and we'll just, just leave it at that because when you walk into the snake room, Especially with things like false water cobras that are so insanely responsive to your presence. They just kind of mm-hmm. come out. There's no, like, we don't have to have conversations. But they still want something. Uh, they, they want, you know, that rat or whatever. But I, I have found myself just wanting to be in the snake room for, like, just an hour or two a day. Just to be there. And so I'm actually, for this time last year, I was like, put them down. But this year, I'm like, I don't really know. Like, what the hell am I going to do when I get home and Kathy and Colin go to bed if when, when they're brewmating this year? Because I don't know. It's just been a different year. But uh, that's happening with me starting. Like, last meals were fed last week. So they're basically purging now. Uh, but our buddy, um, we had him on the show. It was one of our actually most listened to episodes because I now have the keys to the kingdom and get that data. <laughs> um, but Jason Hood. Uh, mm-hmm. Set me up some of his button quail. He's been talking about it. Yes. yes. Oh, you got a free package. See, Jason yeah. knows. J- Jason's a smart guy. He's a good and, dude. And he sent me in, in the message that he sent me. Um, he basically, I said like, "What am I getting?" Because he was like, "What's your mailing address?" And I gave him the the address. And um, I don't know if he remembers it, but he he sent me a freaking blue tegu two two years ago, like in the middle of the pandemic, and I. I wasn't sure if I was actually getting the tegu, and then it showed up on my porch. I was like, all right, I'm getting the tegu, <laughs> and it's upstairs. So I don't know what the hell was coming in the box. I was like, what's in the box, that whole seven thing? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, what's in the box? He, yeah. But um, it was his bun quail, and he, and he said, I'm sending you snake crack. And I, I will attest to the fact I thought out 20 of them, and I just went around the room um, because we – We've had the other quail here, babe, like fresh out of the lake, but we didn't have the itty bitty button quail, like you know. And he was right. I fed those things; nothing refused them. Every single snake ate them. The um, the the falsy babies ate them. The well, the lamps are of course going to eat them. The um, I, I picked up a pair. I don't know why, but I did. Haitian boas. They ate them, uh, and then I also have Gila's now at the house because nice. I just needed those and I knew they were going to eat them and holy lord the response out of the female when she came raging out of her burrow was pretty cool so I just want to thank Jason here but the button quail man th- hey, that yeah. that was pretty awesome uh, we have it- thank you yeah. so much Jason much appreciated we're yeah. going to see what uh, what gray bands do with them yeah there you go <laughs> So that that was just the thing I wanted to to throw out there. But 
We got a new section or, or part of the podcast. We're going to try this episode. Let us know if you like it. Let us know if you don't. Um, but uh, I'm going to let Clint introduce it because this was his brainchild. And I think it's great. So we were, you know, I, anytime we talk to someone about the podcast, Zach and I both, um, we always ask for feedback. We always want to know what can we do differently? What do you like? What do you not like? What was your favorite episode? Um, and a lot of what we are told kind of, it filters into two things. You know, well, I, I'll say three. <clears throat> Everyone loves the deep dive into nuance. We know that. Yeah. You know, that's that's really the bread and butter of the show. Um, so when we're talking about a species and we go further than just temps and caging and we start really getting into those things that you don't see on a care sheet, that's, uh, you know, people really respond well to that. The other two pieces that we found, um, I, I guess, really make Zach and I feel good because it's, <laughs> you know, a big piece of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, it's... Whenever we get into the the depth of of the science behind an animal, like so, you know, when Zach will talk about the actual actual physical changes and physical things happening in a snake when they brumate, you know, pieces like that, people really liked. You know, it's it's very interesting. So it's the science behind what's going on, and naturally, that's Zach. That is completely his wheelhouse. Another uh, episode that got a lot of attention and a lot of response was the episode that we did on, I think it was titled, um, so you want to be a snake breeder full-time, you <laughs> want to breed snakes full-time, something like that. Um, it was more the market and understanding what's going on and really just that as a whole, you know, so the, the kind of that, the business side to it, uh, which naturally falls, you know, into my wheelhouse. So I mentioned to Zach, I think something that we may want to try is an update. On each episode. So, you know, the thought process was an update from me on what I'm seeing in the market, as well as I've reached out to get some more um, analytics on the market specifically. And I'll go into that in a moment. And then from Zach, what's what's new? You know, what is happening in the world of herpetology or, you know, uh, herpetocultural or herpeticulture that is just cool. You know, what's, what's the science update out there? Um, and so if we can bring and, and keep things like this fresh on every episode, um, hopefully it's something that you guys like, um, let us know, you know, so just give us some feedback, shoot us each a message, um, you know, comments, however you can get at the information to us, because by all means, we want to ensure that we're delivering what you as the audience, you know, really want to hear. So, yeah. um, all right. Well, with, without further ado, I'll throw it over to you, Zach, and give us your first <laughs> science update. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what, what I thought was, was really cool, it, it's come out in the past month. So it's, it's, it's new-ish is the best way to say that, uh, is that I shared this when it came out, and I thought it was pretty awesome, is um, there's basically in, in 2021 – Researchers were in the rainforest, I think in South America, and they, they ran up on a, um, a snail eater, which is in the genus Dipsis. And anybody that knows me knows I wrote a, knows I wrote a little book on the Dipsatid family of snakes. And Dipsis is the literal nominant genus for Dipsatidae. Um, but uh, this snake basically made an auditory cue or, or squeaked, for lack of a better word, 
in response to being touched. And so big deal there is that snakes were not known to make auditory – like they were not known to squeak. Um, <laughs> there's ways they make noises. Uh, there's lots of roaring. And I don't mean like lion roaring. So like back off everybody. It's like, oh, no, they don't roar. I'm not saying they do that. But things like uh, king cobras when they – bring in air and then they push it out forcibly it's it goes well beyond a, a hiss yeah bull snakes pitch office keep it in our wheelhouse so like we knew they did those um everybody that's really into nerdy herpetology is well aware of mercurius the coral snakes doing their cloacal popping essentially they fart <laughs> and it makes a popping noise and and you know these are defensive strategies Yes, that's right. You heard it here. If you didn't know that, that's a you defense. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. using this for now. Maybe yeah. it was just a little cloaca pop. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I want. <laughs> but it's a defensive strategy, Clint. So think about what you're saying. Fair <laughs> yeah. In the heat of battle, you just cloaca pop and run away. <laughs> so anyway, um, but uh, this goes beyond that because th this was – quite literally an auditory like this was a squeak uh and they, there's a paper that was published if you want the paper this is actually a funny little aside um clint was like we got to do a science thing tonight and i was like oh i've had like a day at work and then i wrote him like i can't find it <laughs> and then he sent it to me immediately and i was like where the hell did you get that he's like your facebook page i was like oh <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so if you want the article, just go to my Facebook page because I shared it. Um, but um, but but like the ramifications here are people thought for a while that snakes probably made some kind of noise uh, beyond a, a, a hiss. Um, whether they're actually making the noise with you know, I'm not. I don't think they're making it with vocal cords or anything like that. But they have to have some kind of uh, adaptation in their larynx, their windpipe. Um, that enables them to bend air to make this this auditory cue in response to being interrupted. So I just thought that was really cool. And in the manuscript, which uh, is open access so anybody can read it, um, they basically hypothesize as to why the snakes are doing what they're doing uh, and why they did what they did. And basically the animal was out. It was roaming around. It wasn't passive. And when they interacted with it, it was already kind of on point. And so um, – but yeah, that that's my my science update is that snakes can actually squeak. So there you so go. So cool, mm -hmm. so cool. Can you imagine to be the first person <laughs> awesome. that heard that? Yes. You kind of have to. Oh, I would have lost it. Did did did, did I hear what I thought <laughs> yeah. I heard? Is that? Yeah, that's all. Awesome. Well, well, but to back it up like fifty years, I want to know what the first person's response was to that cloacal popping. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they looked so, at their friend. Was that? Yeah. You? Yeah. You know yeah exactly. <laughs> Oh, I love okay, it. so that's mine. What's yours, Clint? Good deal. Okay, well, uh, as far as market up, uh, updates go, a little general to begin with. Um, so, you know, here we are, the first week of November, and typically this is the time of year that for those of us that are online uh, sellers, we start to see that slowdown, uh, or we've mm -hmm. probably already saw the slowdown. Um, and this year, it's it's been kind of weird anyway uh, as a whole. But with the weather changing, with the holidays coming up, um, if you are an online um, uh, reptile breeder, don't be surprised if, if sales tend to kind of start to trickle off. That's, that's common. 
Um, I have found, I mean, with the brick and mortar, if you are at, if you've got a retail shop or if you are someone who does shows, once Thanksgiving is out of the way, it kind of blows back up for you. Um, Because again, you can't really ship, so that doesn't happen. But if you are a place where people can actually get their hands on the items, it becomes Christmas shopping, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You can expect some pickup there. Now, one anomaly that we had this particular uh, year was the big sales event on Morph Market. That's something that we haven't experienced before. Um, the Morph Madness sale, I believe, is what uh, what they were calling it. So, uh, I reached out to Darian and chatted for a little while today, and he gave me some numbers. And these aren't final because obviously the sale is still going on. Um, and before I go into this, I guess prior to this conversation, one of the things I was going to say that I noticed was if an animal wasn't selling, typically I say if it's been stagnant for about a 90-day period, depending on what it is, of course, but if it's stagnant for about a 90-day period, especially if you get up to about the six-month mark, Price is probably your problem, you know, and price needs to be adjusted. Um, however, I'm finding that there are certain specials that uh, we may run that are, are real strong and you still don't see a lot of action on it. And I think that's going to be a lot of the economy right now combined with the time of year. So I guess my advice on that would be don't try to, to blow everything out right now because – you're still not going to move a whole lot in many cases. Um, but I never discourage people from running sales. You know, sales get attention, uh, so utilize it when you can. Now, the event is different. To me, a sale is one thing. An event is a much bigger attention mm-hmm. grabber. And with Morph Market, it's kind of like Prime Day right now. Yeah, that, That's an event, you know, so you got a lot of eyes on it. Um, and so as it stands right now, um, it looks like sales are approximately 50% higher this year for the sales event than for the same period last year on Morph Market. So they, huh. they've increased 50% during the sales event. Um, so that's, I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of pretty exciting. They're expecting about 3,000 animals to be sold during the event, going by the numbers that have moved so far Good off of Morph Market. Yeah. Um, said that the colubrid categories are seeming pretty even at the moment. Um, now I know previously hognose were kind of taking the lead in animals being sold. Now keep in mind, as with anything, the numbers aren't always going to be perfect. Um, for example, on Morph Market, it only registers if someone marks that an animal has been sold. Yeah. If they're not, you know, following up, then you know. So there's going to be some leeway there, but it still gives you a, a general idea. Um, and to give an idea of the scope of the event, there are currently twenty five thousand six hundred and ten animals on sale, not for sale, <laughs> on sale on Morph Market right now. Um, so I mean, that's that's pretty incredible, and that's out of a hundred and two thousand total animals that are, are marked there. So about a quarter of the animals are listed on sale. Um, now I saw that there's an idea of having events like this three or four times a year. Personally, I think that's a bad idea. I think that starts to get to 
you know, where you're looking at, it's then not a sales event. It's people are just going to wait. And so now that's actually the price of the animal. It's not a sale, right? Um, however, talk to Darren and he's, he's thinking more along the lines of about two times a year. And I think yeah. that's probably just perfect. And, uh, and you know, whenever you're having a lull like we're having right now, events are good. You know, events are a mm-hmm. good thing. So um, to see that amount of movement during what's arguably the lowest point, you know, of the year, that's that's pretty exciting, pretty encouraging. Um, now, I saw some prices that hurt my feelings, you know, on some <laughs> things where it's like, ouch, man, you know, I don't know if I'd have done that. But, um, you know, it, typically we can probably guess which market that is. That, uh, mm-hmm. you know, panics and, and, and runs down there. But again, um, I, I know I'm kind of talking out both sides of my mouth here when I say, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to gut yourself, you know, whenever you're pricing your animals. I'm also a believer where, I mean, if you you price them too low, you're just encouraging it to be a throwaway animal. And and I, I hate that. Um, but at the same time, don't uh, don't fail to use the marketing that's out there uh, whenever it comes to finding new homes for these animals. So nice. Um, but that's uh, that's the update. Uh, look forward to having some more numbers and, and everything for you guys in the future. Um, hopefully we can also, you know, we'll talk about the, the peaks and the valleys as they come sure. and uh, where we're riding and how to utilize them. I have a, a quick question and then we'll totally move sure. on to, to chat. Mm-hmm. So I on the market piece, because I am in uh, I, I one of the things I like about us being hosts is that I. You obviously are in this for for the love of the snakes. I don't want to say you know mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. you know this is your livelihood, and you're selling the snakes, and yeah. so you have to yeah. pay attention to the market. Meanwhile, I'm kind of like the keeper that doesn't necessarily have to pay attention to the market, but is mm-hmm. just reading about the market all the time. Um, and, and one of the things that I've seen several posts about throughout the various social medias is like herpetoculture is dead. You know, it, and I and I read that, and I'm like, "What the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah, it can slump, so, yeah. but it's not dead." Like, I don't. So, in response to that, my question is: my interpretation of it being dead is that basically, it's not dead, but rather things that were going for like twenty five hundred dollars or three thousand dollars are 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 not moving the way they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they're dropping down. Like the only market I pay any attention to is the false water cobra market. Um, and and I know like this time last year, or, so going into the summer, they were selling like a high black or a hypo was like six to $700. And I distinctly remembered looking at that price thinking, what the hell? Like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's up there. Now those same animals are down around 400. Like they, you know, mm-hmm. But I don't interpret that as them dying. I just interpret it being a buyer's market. No, so is, is that is there any truth okay. to this? Like, here this could be I'll a whole say. episode, by the way. So sorry it, about it, it putting could you in be. this corner. No, no, th- <laughs> this is good. This is good because you know I, it's funny. I, I thought to myself earlier I should mention this, and I almost got away and forgot about it. So I'm glad you asked that question. Okay, couple points to that. One, the Reptile market is cyclical, 
And that's mm-hmm. something that I think – I don't want to say people forget because those who have been in it for a while know it and expect it. It's those who got in in within a three- to five-year period that have only ridden mm-hmm. the highs and saw it going up, up, up that when it comes back down – they think it's a crash, and it's not a crash. It's a cycle. That's just part of it. it. It continues to go around. Now, those that are screaming from the rooftops that it's dead, it's you know nothing's moving. I, I don't mean to attack here, and I, I again, <laughs> I'm somebody who has a couple hundred of these. <clears throat> the ball python market is who is the loudest when it comes to these kinds of things. And that's probably because there's a lot of people in it who spent a lot of money in the past three to five years and they're not Mm -hmm. getting that money out of it now. And that's part of the cycle. Uh, They also have much bigger swings in the pricing. When you talk about a $2,500 animal being marked down to 400 bucks now, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing that's, that happens. So one, the, the market is, it's going to, always do this. And, and, you know, we've always seen this, but I'll also point out it's not as weak as what we are led to believe. And the reason I say that are because those who are struggling right now are very Mm -hmm. loud about it. Those who are actually moving right along and having the sales that they need if they start screaming about that as loud as the ones who aren't, then they become an arrogant prick. <laughs> so they don't do that. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's normal for people to, you know, ah, this isn't right. But it's not as nice to come out and go, man, I just slung a hundred of them. You know, it's, yeah. you, you can't do that. So, so just know that the people who are doing well aren't going to go on social media and say that where those who aren't will. So that's the side that you hear on a more regular basis. Now, walking right down the middle, this year as a whole is lighter than previous years. But I think if you go into any industry, you're going to hear that same thing. So it it can't be a surprise to anyone. So to say that, you know, herpticulture is dead, far from it. Far from it. Um, It's simply in one of the low cycles during a low year, but it's still moving. It just depends on what it is you have. That's that's what it comes down to. So, All right. Real quick, I think this is Chad here. I I could comment on what you were saying there, Clint, is I'm what one would call a hobby breeder. I work full-time elsewhere, and so this isn't my bread and butter. I have a hundred animals plus last count. Uh, um, mm-hmm. and I, and I, but I can only entertain breeding 10 to 14 clutches or so a year. I could, I could breed three quarters of my collection, but I just can't entertain that. I don't have the time or the capacity mm-hmm. to, to tend to that many animals. And so I'm always really selective by watching the trends in the market. I mean, I, th- I believe that all, all reptiles are commodities, if you will, they fluctuate, they ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. When you have Mexican black king snakes, for example, on on morph market that are going for two hundred fifty bucks and riding that price line for a couple of years, and then they start dropping because people jump on board. They say, "Hey, I should breed those. They're going for a lot of money." Then you get an oversaturation in the market, and then the price goes down, so you can move inventory. 
So I'll choose specifically to not breed a species like that for a year or two. And, for, hey, I'm going to try this species, uh, you know, grab a milk snake pair that's ready to go and see how they do. Or see, you know, kind of breed animals that you don't see very often. Mm-hmm. So I, I completely agree with you on that. But, again, I have the luxury of having my 9 to 5 that pays the bills. <laughs> and so the snake money that I get is a bonus because of my passion for them. And it's mm-hmm. a bonus because it's not allocated for my bread and my gas and my water bill, you know, yeah. so it, it makes yeah, it kind 100%. of nice for me. Yeah. It makes it kind of nice for me. I mean, don't, don't, don't get, take that the wrong way. It's work for mm-hmm. sure. Even with, you know, working nine to five and being tired, you know, I, I've been getting up at two thirty every morning. I got a job that I start at 4 AM. So <laughs> I'm tired too, boys. <laughs> yeah, good grief. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these snake demands piss me off, quite honestly. Yeah. It's like, you little, you little boogers, man. I'm yeah. tired. I want to eat good. Just eat that damn pinky. Come on. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Absolutely. Well, I, we should just jump right into it. So Yeah, let's do it. Yep. All righty. So our guest tonight, you just heard him, Chad, um, Chad Gordon, how are you today, sir? Good? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, happy to be here. I, I appreciate the invite, Zach. It's nice to put faces to the Facebook acquaintances like yes. we talked about earlier. <laughs> uh-huh. We were talking about, you know, you get into these different reptile groups and you're BFFs with a whole slew of people, but you've never met them. Sometimes are. if you even call them directly, they're like in shock, you know, hey, oh, should I answer? They get all nervous when you actually talk yeah. to them as opposed to well, it, a message on Facebook. <laughs> before we go further, I actually want to talk about that because I have I, – I hate – I can't text on a freaking phone, dude. My right thumb doesn't bend. <laughs> so when I am <laughs> trying to text – there's just typo after type. I mean, I don't. I mean, Clint oh, has yeah. gotten these messages where he's probably like, <laughs> "You drunk? Like, what is going on?" And it's not that at all. And I would so much rather just be like, if they're gonna, if this is gonna be a ten minute thing, let's just talk on the damn phone. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I find that when I like say, "Hey, can I call you?" If it's somebody that's like thirty five or older, their response is like, "Yeah, sure." Yeah. If it's somebody that's 34 or younger, they're like, what kind of predator are you? You want to talk to me? <laughs> like, like, what the hell? Like, I've literally had people be like, well, no, I'm not comfortable. Like, I'm not, like, dude, I'm just wow. talking about the damn snake. So, um, what, what no. do you think we did before before cell phones? We're on a yeah. landline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you, Zach. That's, that's a very true statement. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm uh, all thumbs with the texting, and there's people that, what uh, I call machine gun text. Yeah. They'll put out a whole paragraph of text before you uh-uh. can say okay or LOL. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just I'm not that quick on the keyboard with my yes. thumbs. But but I promise the listening audience I am not a predator. So if I ask you to talk on the phone, it, it's totally about snakes. Anyway, um, so uh, you know, it's kind of our customary first question to simply ask our guests, you know. Where, where's the start? So has this been a lifelong thing? Is this a late in life thing? Why snakes? What, what got you in in the first place? Well, quite honestly, for, for me, it was my grandfather when I was a wee lad in Southern California, you know, driving mm-hmm. out to the desert and pear blossom, pulled over and said, look, look, grandson, here, this is a gopher snake or some other kind of snake that was crossing the road out in the high desert there. And so, you know, as with everything, you know, if you're exposed to a certain thing when you're growing up, I was a young boy in Southern California, Riverside County, and 
all we ever did was run around up Ortega Highway and catch anything that we could catch and take it home and put them in a shoebox. So my love with reptiles started with uh, California king snakes and gopher snakes in the hills of uh, Riverside County, Lake Elsinore, to be nice. exact. Yeah, so I collected them through high school, and I'd come home with rattlesnakes because my mom <laughs> knew that I was able to catch them. And she'd be like, that thing better not get out of its cage. You know, I never had a cage ready for the animals. So I'd, mm -hmm. But I'd catch them and bring them home anyways. I remember one summer in Lake Elsinore, my friends and I were catching everything we could find. And I converted a book, like a four-tier bookshelf into a cage with plexiglass fronts and must have had 40 gopher snakes in there. Oh Didn't know God. how to care. You know, I knew how to feed them and that kind of stuff. And uh, I had a king snake one time that I caught that was gravid and she laid eggs and I wet some sand, put the eggs in the sand, and stuck it up in the closet. I didn't know the first thing about how to incubate eggs. And, of course, they, mm -hmm. they solidified and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. And so then get to current times, you know, and during my mid-20s, I had a Burmese python. You know, I, I had kids, got mm -hmm. married, but I still had a snake. I had a, I had a, a guano as well. I had a Burmese python from a hatchling and kept that till uh, it was, she was about 13 feet eating rabbits and guinea wow. pigs. And then uh, we had some things, you know, personally so that caused me to move on. So I, I, I adopted her out to a reptile guy. I, I had since moved up to Oregon in my yeah. uh, early 30s. And so I didn't have a snakes for a long time. And then when all the kids grew up and moved out, got a good uh, salary job. And I had, mm -hmm. and I'm sitting in it right now. I, I had an extra room upstairs. I said, hey, you know what? I'm going to get a snake again. I think I'd like to do that. Yeah. Just I just had a wild hair up my you-know-what, and I was like, I'm going to get a snake again, because I always liked them, just kind of mm -hmm. put them on the back burner. And now I found myself in a position with a, you know, a six-digit income that I could actually acquire the snakes that I always just drooled over when I was a kid. Yeah. As, a, as a kid, all I ever had was snakes that I could catch out in the field. So mm -hmm. I started off with a mosaic Florida king snake. I, oh, that's a bitchin'-looking snake. I'm going to get that. So mm -hmm. I got him. Had fun with my grandkids naming him. He's uh, Leonidas, you know. So every yeah. one of my animals in my collection, I have over 100 now, last count. Um, mm -hmm. They all have names because the grandkids help. And, of course, I have That's awesome. Shrek, and, Shrek and Fiona. I have a Miley and a Cyrus. <laughs> I, have a, I have a Ragnar and a Lagertha, you know, those kind mm -hmm. of things. I even have a Eleanor and a Rigby, you know, to quote the uh, old Beatles song. Mm -hmm. So um, started with one. It started, you know, then I got another one, got a Honduran, a Hypotangerine, then I got a Pueblin, and then it escalated from there. And then I started getting the questions from the wife, you know, so how many is going to be enough? I was like, I don't know, maybe 10 or 20. And here I am 80 more later, yeah. but I have, I have her full support. And so after about three or four of them, I started joining some of these groups on Facebook and meeting really known individuals, Aaron Bayer and, you know, Scotty Luttrell and Keith, uh, Keith Campbell and a bunch of different guys that had a lot of knowledge. And I thought as a youngster, I was, I was the shizzle. I thought I knew everything about snakes, <laughs> but when I started meeting people and learning all the different nuances and all the variations and species that there actually were, mm -hmm. it intrigued me. And so I started to fall in love with them. And so here I find myself now with a collection of Kings and milks that, like I said, is about a hundred and, and people ask me a lot, you know, what are the differences of them? And I said, well, because they're all Lampropeltis and they're all Colubrids, I kind of look at my collection like the menu at Taco Bell. <laughs> they're all made up of the same stuff, but they're just all put together differently. And it really rings true. It really is. When you look at my collection, it's like the menu at Taco Bell. They're all made of the same thing. It's just 
deb- uh, displayed in a different way, and they're <laughs> put awesome. together different. <laughs> so and, and why Lamp Peltis? What yeah. what took you that direction? You know, it sounds like because you I had think, gophers, you, you had all this other stuff before. I think What's it was. There? I think it was part of it as a child and a young lad in Southern California. When you found a king snake, that was like the unicorn. You know, at least for me, yeah. it was. You know, you, gopher snakes were everywhere. You'd find Pacific gophers every corner. You turn down off of Clinton Keith and down the, the the 15 freeway corridor. You wouldn't find the king snakes as frequently, and, and possibly because I didn't know exactly where to look. But when they'd pop up once in a while, it was like a, a unicorn. It was like, oh, you know, all the light yeah. shined on you. And you're like, whoa, I got a king snake. And so having a Burmese python for for my middle to late 20s, Great snake, but I could only keep one of them, you know, with the limitation of mm-hmm. size because she was a big girl. And it was a little bit of a challenge to go to the pet store and get feeder bunnies and feeder guinea pigs. They'd usually yeah. sell me the ones that wouldn't be good pets because they bit somebody or got bit by the other ones. And so when I started getting back into it, I had one 12 by 10 room upstairs. And I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to get back into king snakes. And I always liked the look of Florida kings. So that was the mm-hmm. first one I acquired. And the fact that they, top out at typically less than six feet for some species. Most of them that I keep are three and a half to four and a half feet. You know, I got some that have some big genes in them. I have some going eye that uh, have parents that are about seven feet long. So there they could get pretty big. And I got a few Honduran milks that are approaching six feet and black milks, that kind of stuff. So I wanted to keep it small. I like, I like feeding frozen thawed. A typical chest freezer wouldn't hold a hundred guinea pigs in it, but it holds a heck of a lot of rats and mice of various sizes. So I felt that I could I could entertain a bigger variety of animals with the colubrids just because of the lack of big size like false water cobras and crebos yeah. and those types of things, which I would love to have, but I got to get a property with a bigger shop before I entertain mm-hmm. that because it wouldn't be fair to those animals to cram them into my little snake room, right? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Plus the 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 very diverse, you know, the the huge variety in the in the looks, the colorations, the, mm-hmm. the temperaments, the demeanors of them all. I mean, they're all different. Even the same species, they're all individuals, and I I know each one of their personalities, how they react to opening their tub or their glass enclosure. I know when they're hungry. I know when they just want to come out and explore, and I know when they're feeling afraid for some reason. You know, so. They, they're just a very unique species to me. I mean, there's so many different animals in the world, and I couldn't really decide which one. So I got pretty much Lamperpeltis from the East Coast, the West Coast, Mexico, Central America, and California. So Arizona, you know, the Montanes. So I have a little bit of everything, at least in the Americas. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they're just, just beautiful animals, very, very, very beautiful creatures, and I just love them. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. So you, you just kind of alluded to it, so we'll, we'll, we'll just kind mm-hmm. of fill out the set. Without going – well, I guess you can't do it without going into depth. That's like <laughs> that's a this, this is set. a depth question, yeah. yeah. This is. Uh, I, can, I can summarize. Uh, yeah. What, what's, what's your collection look like now? So like you know, how so, many of the so, East Coast Kings, Montane Kings, Central American milks, you know, that kind of thing? Well, I, I found as I've – Increased the size of my collection and bred some of my species, like my Florida king, for example. He was my first guy. I got a female, bred them. Uh, first year breeder, she popped out like 21 eggs. 19 of them made it full term and hashed out, and they were little bastards. They were just small and they were striky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not that a bite from any kind of a colubrid really hurts, you know, but, mm-hmm. but, but again, you know, talking to your stuff, Clint, the market value of a 
mosaic male to a normal female didn't really produce a whole lot of animals that had an inherent value. And again, mm -hmm. it's not about the money for me, but it's about my time and effort put into breeding mm -hmm. a particular species. So as I've evolved through my collection, I've acquired more and more, and then I've assessed and, and sold some off. Like I sold that female female mm -hmm. king to, to you, Zach, the female. I still yeah. have the male, and he's he's my first dude. He's not going nowhere. He's a family pet. You know, that's mm -hmm. Leo, Leonidas. Um, mm -hmm. I even have a Spartan shield in his aquarium with him, you know, because it's King Leonidas, right? <laughs> yeah. And he, he hides behind it. He knocks it up. He makes a hell of a mess out of his cage. He usually likes to crap on the upper parts of the glass. Yes. So, but as game. I progress, it's always yeah, there, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Or in a clean water bowl. They always mm -hmm. do that, too. So as I started meeting other breeders, I had a lot of good friends that gifted me some very nice, unique uh, animals. And then I acquired some that's like, hey, I'd really like to breed those and see how that goes. Not, not just about the profitability, but the ease at getting babies to feed, yeah. the ease of getting them to uh, breed, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. they, they all have different characteristics. And so as I started progressing through that, I started, in as far as the milk snakes go, currently in my collection, I have Honduran milk snakes, a number of varieties. I have albinos. I have Bailey's Hondurans. I have hypotangerines. I have some normals, and I have a project that I'm working on, a high black, where you have a really huge reduction in the reds on a normal-looking one and some, like, red sidewalls on them. And so I want to try to perpetuate that. I have... A couple pairs of Sinalone milk snakes. One pair I have. The male's not quite old enough yet, but they are uh, Bayer line. You know, they come from Aaron Bayer's originating founding parents, which were a wild-caught sire and a F2 Kosala, I think. So there's a lot of purity to that, you know. And so I have, I have a, a huge collection of milk snakes. I really fell in love with the aberrant Halloween type of morphs. So as opposed to pure locality or sockhead types, I've gone with the wacky looking ones on the Pueblos, <laughs> you know. I love some perfect looking animals. I have a pair of uh, Yucatan milks and they, they're picture perfect nice. Yucatan milks, perfect bands. I've heard they're het for patternless, but we'll see when I finally get them to breed. So I find uh, value and uh, appreciation of those types of animals. But then on the other end, I like the super wonky ones too. The Bailey Hondurans uh, come from a line that is super aberrant. So I'm, I'm trying to breed those too, but, and then I have, um, so I got the Sinalones. I got, I got a trio of going eye from the East coast. I have a patternless male. I have a striped male and I have a splotch female and those can get rather big. Um, I have a huge number of California king snakes, both pure localities as well as non localities like your albino high whites you know, because those are a commodity. A lot of people, you know, they want that pink danger noodle. Oh, I want a cute little uh, pink <laughs> snake. And so I keep them because there's inherent value for people for that particular market. But the localities I can find are, I found are, can be a little bit more challenging to sell because you're looking for a specific market, people that can actually appreciate the purity of a locality. And I, I talk about growing up in Lake Elsinore. I have a, a, a pair of wild-caught California king snakes from Lake Elsinore. Riverside County, Lake Elsinore localities. So they're wild caught. And I, I consistently produce uh, F1 clutches of those that produce. I mean, the wild caught female, my, my dam is a, is a dot dash, wild occurring, <laughs> caught right in the wild in the same field that the striped male was. So I get a lot of those. I got a few holdbacks from those pairs. And then I have, uh, you know, I have Jawbone Canyons from uh, John Lowerman's lines. I have Mendota from 
Jerry uh, Hartley's lines, you know, so localities there. I have 29 Palms from uh, one of the gentlemen back east. Um, so there's a lot of uh, appeal that I have for certain localities as nature made them. And so I, I keep those pure. I don't cross them. Um, the, the most unique pair of cow kings that I have, and I really dig this fact about them, are uh, my Catalina Island locality. Oh, cool. And what's really cool about them is, for one, they're like F2s or whatever, but these little suckers don't get much bigger than two and a half to three feet. They're island dwellers, so they've evolved because of the limitations of their geographic territory. They've evolved over generations to not get very large. My breeding pair is under, they're about probably about 30 inches long. Wow, so, that's cool. And it's and it's kind of cool too because my wife and I actually got married on Catalina Island, so it's like oh, I thought about naming na- naming I thought about naming them Chad and Josie. That's my wife's name, but I went with uh, I went with Wrigley and Avalon on the name. So so they're a very unique pair. They're a very unique locality. And the other part to that is I like having animals that aren't as common. You know, you yeah. don't see them as much. I mean, for one, it's an inherent value. But when you post a picture on um, a pic on Facebook, people are like, "Whoa, what is that? I've never seen one of those." Um, my Andean milk snakes. I got a good breeding pair of Andeans, and although those have fluctuated, they're not as common on Morph Market or on Facebook as Hondurans are, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I fell in love with different species for different reasons: colorations, uniqueness, personalities. The Andean milk snakes. From the day they were they were hatchlings, there's something about Andeans that is, they they have sort of this courageous demeanor about them. They're they're calm. They're not all spazzy like a little milk snake can be. I have Pueblin milk wow. snake hatchlings that will skydive out of my hatchling rack when I'm trying to feed them, until you handle them a little bit and they chill out a little bit. But the Andean milk snakes, for some reason, just do not have that tendency. And and yeah. the pair that I got, I got some really good ones. That my male or my female came from Aaron Bayer. And my mail came from Glenn Brooksy. So I got good lines there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have black milk snakes, which are really bitching. I really like, I, re- I really like the coloration on them when they're about two years old, when the, the reds start to fade mm-hmm. away and they start fading to black. You almost wish they would stay that way, kind of. So maybe that's part of the reason I'm, I'm working on a, a higher black Honduran project, just because I like the way those look. So, you know, in the 100 animals, I got lots of locality cow kings. I got non-locality cow kings and a wide uh, variety of uh, milk snakes of different morphs and different uh, types, you know? So I just don't know where to stop, but I've reached my capacity in my current snake room until we uh, get a property with a bigger shop. And then, and then I, I kind of go through the collection uh, periodically and assess the animals that I've had that I have. And it's like, I ask myself, do I want to continue breeding these? Do I want to keep one as a pet or would I like to move them on to somebody else that might have more drive to breed them? Because Part of breeding snakes is you tell yourself every year, no holdbacks this year, and you always see one or two at least that come out of your clutch. You're like, I can't sell that one. I can't let that one go. I was going to say, so I yeah, myself that a long time ago. Uh, I, yeah, know I, I, think, I know better. I, I think I have because you kind of jinx yourself. But um, I bred some Splendida this year, and the I, got, I only got four eggs out of them, but both parents are het hypo, and I got two hypos out of four eggs. So really good odds oh. there. Unfortunately, they're both males. But I may keep one of them, and the hypo ones are really unique looking. I got those um, from Keith Campbell through John, or from John Lasseter through Keith Campbell. So they're from John's lines, and their pictures don't do them justice. You post pictures of some of these animals, and people are like, "Ooh, ah!" But until you see them in real, in person, in the daylight, in the sunlight, uh, pics can't do half of these animals mm-hmm. justice. So you know, Damn. I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> 
So, so when it comes to, well, well, so the listeners know we are go, we 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 kind of made our minds up that we're going to go more milk snake tonight. Mm-hmm. And that we were going gotcha. to kind of jump on the the pueblins because nobody really talks about those, and and that's just a wonderful animal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and then and then do the Hondurans as well because we haven't really t- had much Honduran talk. But we can see yeah. your snake room. The audience can't see your snake room, but I'm seeing racks and I'm seeing tanks. And one of the things that we like to do is is do husbandry, and I'm I'm picking up vibes yeah. of of my snake room because my snake room is right. racks and like, I I literally have. Exoterras, PVC enclosures, um, freedom breeder tubs in a non-freedom breeder rack, a vision mm-hmm. t- like it's it's you know it, it's what works if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. if we right. could talk a little bit about just your strategy when it comes to taking care of like adults, um, right? Is there a decision that goes into who gets a tank, who gets a tub? Some of them kind of got grandfathered in, and and I know the audience that can't see this, but I started with like forty gallon breeders for some of my mm-hmm. bigger snakes, and then I have your racks in the middle of the room and that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. then I have some racks that I built with my son. I have racks that I purchased that were already prefabricated. So I started off with just glass. Like when they were all small, I started off with glass tanks, you know, tens and twenty longs, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And as those animals started to grow. I acquired 40-gallon breeder tanks for some of the species like the Hondurans that would benefit from a bigger space. Yeah. I also kind of, in my decision-making, sometimes I will put animals in glass that are always out and about crawling around. I mean, you can see yeah. my Honduran behind me. Mm-hmm. I like walking into the snake room and seeing this dude crawling around the the, mm-hmm. the enrichment and such that's in the cage. Um, for the sheer sake of numbers of animals, I can't have, you know, I have a lot of snakes that are okay in a 40-quart tub, but I I don't have space for 50 of those, you know. So some of it's the practicality of being able to stack them and rack them. Um, I put put enrichment and fake plants and stuff in even in my tub systems just so the animals got something to shed against. They always got a water bowl. I keep a hide in there for them. Um, A lot of it's just about the animals that I like to look at, and sometimes it's, uh, my wife telling me, you're not putting Fiona. Fiona's one of my gray band females. And she's like, you're not putting her in a tub. She could stay in that glass tank. I'm like, okay, no problem. You know, so like, <laughs> gotta keep the wife happy too. But, but again, it's about, you know, you got, if you got a snake that's always curled up in its hide, whether it's in glass or a tub or a rack system, in my mind, some of them are more secure and feel better in our tubs, uh, tub system because they're tucked mm-hmm. away in the dark. Mm-hmm. These fossorial type of snakes that never want to come out and climb around and explore. So a lot of it's about the maximum, the best usage of the space that I have, as well as certain animals seem to do better in more tight quarters. Um, mm-hmm. I want them to have as much space as they need to be thriving and eating well and staying healthy. And some of them, from my personal opinion, do better in a rack system. So I kind of take that into consideration. Um, all my hatchlings are in a hatchling rack until they either one get shipped out or they grow a little bit. And then I use the double size hatchling racks. Um, the hatching tubs, I mean, so I'll use the double size ones as they get bigger before I, I move them out, depending on what the market's doing. But I, I like to look at them. If I had the space, I know the time takes a lot more with glass, but if I had the space, I'd have every one of my favorite animals of glass. I have some of my adult breeders that are in, uh, they're like the three foot long tubs in a rack that I built out of a Home Depot shelf. Um, mm-hmm. but it's working pretty good for them. But if I could have a third of my collection in glass tanks, I would just cause I prefer that. Yep. But from a practical perspective, a snake that's 20 inches long doesn't need to be in a 40-gallon tank. 
and I don't have the space for it. So it's mm-hmm. just kind of a juggling act. And then when I get rid of a few adults, I move them on to some other breeder. Everybody gets an upgrade. It's like musical tubs, you know, oh, you're going from this 16 quart <laughs> to this 24 quart or whatever, you know, so they all get upgrades when that happens too. Um, I don't normally rehome adults unless I've bred them once already. And it's like, okay, I bred them and they produce some cool babies, but do they were a real pain in the ass to get feeding or whatever it might be. There's all kinds yeah. of factors. I mean, I, I'm still keeping my breeding pair of gray bands. Even those guys are uh, can be a challenge sometimes to get feeding when they've hatched. Um, you mentioned my Puebla milk snake. So it's like, I think I have, and I, I'm sort of guessing, but I think I have 7.12. I think I have Jesus. seven males and 12 females. Nice. Part of it is because the the inherent beauty that they have. I love the the tricolored animals, but the other part of it is that I decided I wanted to breed and try to perpetuate the Halloween and aberrant kind of look, the reduced reds or the Oreos. That's still a reduced reds. Depends. the The Oreo comes from if you have a a normal female in the mix, and then the Halloween comes from the apricot gene, I guess that gives them that yellowish apricot looking color or a Halloween more so. The other part to the Playblins is they don't get super large, you know, three feet maybe at the most. They can get kind of chubby if you feed them too many rats, but I, I, I fluctuate between mice and rats depending on how my snake's looking and what I determine to be a healthy-looking weight. If they're looking a little thin in the skin, I might give them a few rats for a while just mm-hmm. to kind of chub them up a little bit before brumation, that kind of thing. But the other part is they breed super easily. I, I never have any issues when I pair them up unless they're a little bit too young and or the can, males can you walk a little us bit through that? Can you kind of like, so, do you brew, so you, you mentioned brewmates. So do you brewmate all of your, your milk? So, so the challenge that I have with all of my animals being in the same room is that I don't typically brewmate yearlings, sub adults, just my adults that I want to breed. I'm in Oregon. So really all I have to do, and, and I generally go from Halloween. As a matter of fact, this week has been the last feeding for most of my animals and I'm going to keep them on the heat for a while, let them purge themselves and clean out. And then I'll start reducing their heat. I generally let them uh, go dormant on their own by reducing their temps a little bit. And until about Valentine's day is kind of when they naturally start to perk up a little bit. We get those barometric pressure changes in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So I keep my smaller and younger animals on their racks with the heat but the problem with that in a, in a room where snakes are brumating or off the heat is your ambient temperature in a 12 by 12 room still stays kind of high. So right. being that it's Oregon and we've already had a few 32 degree days is when I'm getting into that phase with my adults, at least I'll crack the window in the snake room a little bit. It, it pulls cooler air into the room. So it helps with the animals that are off the heat, but the animals that are still on the heat are generally okay. And they still keep feeding through the winter. So so it's just kind of a balance. So I, I brumate the bigger ones for that because, and I've heard both ways that brumation doesn't help and then it, that it does. I kind of lean towards that it's the natural cycle for a lot of animals. I mean, even California king snakes that are genetically from Southern California where it hardly ever gets cold, they still go dormant during the winter. So I let them kind of tell me when they're ready. They'll stop wanting to feed as regularly. Even if you haven't cooled them down yet, you'll go to feed them. They're like, ah, get that thing away from me. I'm not hungry. It's like, yeah, it's, it's 52 degrees out. It's getting cooler. I can see why, you know, so I kind of let them dictate a little bit when they, they're ready to start going down. Um, and then the reverse of that in the springtime, you know, around Valentine's day, I keep checking on them and they start to get more active and it's like, oh, I think you're getting ready to start wanting to eat, you know? So 
I just kind of feel it out every year with the individual species, but certainly have some limitations in the space that I have. I have to be creative with how I allow certain animals to cool down, but not other ones that I'm still wanting to feed through the winter and get some size on them. Um, but similarly, you know, if you have certain hatchlings, a lot of hatchlings, if they don't want to get on the feed, you cool them off and you bring them out of brumation. And a lot of times the first thing they want to do is feed. Yeah. So <laughs> part of that's a natural thing for some species too, I'm sure. And, and what temp when that room's dropping down? Um, I always like to hear what the bottom out temperature is. Cause I, I did a thing last year, kind of similar, which you, I, I have the infamous corner. I always talk about, or uh-huh. I, I have an area in my garage. I can get everything down to upper forties actually. Um, but I had a bunch of Florida Kings that were in my office, which I just basically turned off the heat lamps. That was the only thing there in PVC right. enclosures. So I just let whatever the room temperature was. And that room was getting down, I think at night, it was getting down to probably 60, 62 degrees Fahrenheit. And I had um, I had three pairs of Florida Kings breed like crazy there. And then I dropped my Florida Kings in the garage all the way down to like 50. And they were breeding. Mm-hmm. So just because I know people like to kind of keep tabs on this kind of thing, um, what temps do you actually get them down to? Because you have a, a bunch of different species in that room. That's kind of a cool yeah. tidbit. Yeah, it's, it can be a challenge. Um, I, think, I think during the middle of an Oregon winter, when, my, when I have certain animals off the heat and certain ones not, the ambient temp with the window cracked, up in the snake room is usually about 62. I can't really get it any colder than that in here, even if I open the window all the way, but then that would compromise the right. the warmth of the ones that I still had in rack system. So I, I try to find that happy medium and I've, I've not seen any negative results when the animals start perking back up, come springtime and feeding again for courtship to start. I mean, the only mm-hmm. trick I've used with some of my milk snakes is, you know, for example, last year I put my Sinaloans together because the female appeared to be ovulating. They had been feeding really well. I put them together and they were acting like a first date kind of shy. And I would <laughs> squirt them with a water. I would miss the, the, the enclosure with a water bottle. And immediately they started courting and locked right up. So, and I had heard somebody online say that, yeah, spray them down because it simulates a rainstorm. And in the wild, that's where they're their DNA tells them it's time to breed. And sure enough, the minute I did it, I literally squirt, squirt, squirt. And he started chasing her around. The torquey jerk started. And next thing you know, they're locked up. I had a visual lock and I got what a question. What species of, was that? That was my Sinaloan milk thing. Gotcha. Yeah. So that, that did uh, a great deal. I saw a great deal of success there. And I bred some Bailey's Hondurans about three years ago that were doing the same thing, acting all shy with each other, playing hard to get. I squirted them down with a water bottle, and they immediately started courting and locked up. So that's a trick that somebody, somebody credible on Facebook said, try this. Maybe it'll work. And I did it, and I actually mm-hmm. took a video of it, but I, I, I don't think I have the video anymore. But I, I squirted them down. They immediately started twitching and gyrating, and next thing you know, they're making babies. That's so, the first time I've heard this for Lampropeltis. So yeah, that's, it kind of – I was like, wow, that actually did work. How about that? <laughs> so I, I learned something new all the time. You know, it doesn't matter. And anybody can. It doesn't matter how many years or how many months you've been in the profession or the hobby. You can still listen and learn while not trying to profess that you know everything about it. I mean, I play guitar and I've been playing for 40 years, but I could go to Guitar Center right now and see some 12 year old 
pick up an acoustic for the first time and I could learn something from him. Yeah. So I think the same thing applies with snake breeding. We all have, you know, many ways to do things that still work for each of us. I mean, the bottom line for me is that if you have healthy, happy snakes that are doing well, who cares how you're going about it? You know, I've had people question, why do you put hides in tubs? They don't need them because I like it and they use them. So yeah. shut your mouth. You know, mm -hmm. people just get really cocky and arrogant and think that they know everything when it shouldn't be that way. And that's that's nope, one of the turnoffs to the profession sometimes yeah. is people just think they know it all. And everybody's brave behind a keyboard these days. You know what I mean? Oh, so. Yeah. There's all kinds of ways to be successful with your breeding plans and everything, and there's all kinds of tricks that will work. Um, it's just finding that groove with your particular animals and what works for you as an individual. And if it works, and again, like I said, if they're healthy and happy, happy and they're thriving really well, who cares how you go about it? You know, you're still you still got a happy, healthy snake, right? Yep. So before we move past the breeding, um, do you do kind of the typical wait for that first? post brumation shed from the female to yeah parent. yeah do you pair male sign. to female or female to male or you know what does all that look like for you i've, I've tried both so yeah uh, to answer your first question clint yeah i i kind of watch them as they're feeding and then as they start to swell up typically the ovulation signs you know i don't have a, a, a um whatever they use for uh ultrasound thing you know to look yeah, like barchek do does with his with his ball pythons I just look at them and say, wow, you're really fat in the last third, and you can kind of feel those swells that you know are not their last meal, which their stomach's generally a little bit higher up, right? So as soon as I see those signs, it's like, okay, they're, and, and then that shed happens. What I will typically do as a first try is I will put, I'll take the hides and stuff out of the female's cage. I will leave the shed in there, and I will put the male in there. And I've noticed yeah. that with some kind of younger males or shy males, if you have that shed skin in there, from my perspective, it's 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 got some pheromones attached to it or yeah. something because it really yeah. turns them on. It's like a it's like a Spanish fly for the snakes, right? So they <laughs> they get all twerky jerky when that smells in there. Um, I've tried putting the female in with the male before and maybe seen less results. I think because the female's tub smells like her and it really turns the male on. I guess um, I've seen that more successful. But then I've also had success pulling them out and put them in a breeding tub, like a bigger tub that I can control and get to them quicker if i and see them when i walk by the snake room i could glance in and see what's going on um but i'll do that with the female shed skin in that secondary tub and i've had su success that way too part of it for me is um knowing the species and knowing the individuals and how they react i always start off with a, a pre-ovulation introduction especially if mm -hmm. i've not put them together i have a few pairs that i could probably cohabitate them all year long and they'd be fine my two black milks they don't have any any inkling of aggression towards each other. They're both the same size. Um, I might forget which one's which if they get mixed up. I mean, kind of. I'm kind of kidding, but um, I can tell them apart. I, I, I can give you a tip for that: blue uh, and paper. red fingernail polish. I just put just a little bitty, yep, little bitty. I've heard uh, people. I've heard them. of other breeders doing that with their MBKs before. I you do. Know, so. Yes. Well, see, I yeah, also I've do it because I've got someone else that is usually separating the snakes. You yeah. know, we kind of have our routine of on this day I go in, I'm choosing what's getting paired up. Someone else is separating mm -hmm. them, and they may not have the eye for the morph that I do, you know, knowing which snake oh, is yeah, which. Oh, yeah, yeah. And whenever they're doing this with a few hundred snakes, 
it's a lot easier. Right. If, oh, that one's got a red. That one's got a blue. And, you know, they know which, you know, and here's the tag. Yeah, it's a little ID harder with those solid color snakes. I mean, exactly. I, my, my Jawbone Canyon Cow Kings are very similar looking, but they got head stamps that are slightly different. I can tell them apart, you know. So, but I generally, before, like if the female's starting to swell up, I'll, I'll put a pair together just to see how they behave and, and babysit them and watch them closely. But there's other animals that I know personality wise, I can put them together. I don't have to stand here and watch them like a hawk. I can go make dinner or whatever and come back. But I, I do exercise caution with new pairings and with animals that are kind of cannibalistic by nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so because I don't want to come back with one fat snake and where's the, where the hell's my male? You know. So, so yeah, I go through that process. I look for that that preovulation shed and then I'll pair them up for a while. And if I get a good lock, I'll let them stay together as long as they want to. If they show a little bit of interest, but no courtship. I might separate them. I've even, and, and some other breeders may may frown upon this, but when I've had two snakes in a tub before and they're not really courting much, I'll feed them both while they're in there. I'll, I'll make sure that they're not eating each other, but almost immediately with some of them, after they both had a meal, next thing you know, they want to get a little jiggy with each other afterwards. So <laughs> I try different things sometimes to see. I'm going to try this to see if it works, and if it doesn't work, I don't try it again. But if it does work, mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, you know, note to self, that worked really damn good. So it's really just, for me, the bottom line is really knowing your animals because they all have unique personalities to each other, from my That's opinion. Awesome. You know, they all behave differently depending on their personal, their, their own personalities, really. You know, absolutely. I absolutely believe that. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Well, um, so why don't we segue over to uh, to the the Pueblins? I, I just okay. you obviously, if you've got a hundred snakes and twenty of them are Pueblins, you like Pueblins. <laughs> I do. I, do. Yeah. I really do. I, I think they're neat. I think um, <laughs> I think back in my catch snakes in California youngster days, I always saw pictures of Pueblin milk snakes, and I was just fascinated by the tri, you know, the tricolors on them, the red, the black, and the yellow, yeah. and just, wow, those are really pretty. Those are neat. I really want to get some. So I acquired one and uh, then acquired a female, and when I bred them, I had already bred a few other snakes for my first time, you know, a few cow kings and stuff, but the Pueblins bred easy. They laid their eggs, and they hatched. All of them hatched great, and the babies, uh, right after their pre their post hatch shed took frozen thawed right away with no problems uh, there's always a few one-offs here and there that you gotta try alive or warm it up you know that kind of thing but they were super easy probably the easiest hatchlings to get onto frozen thawed rodents after hatching for my opinion wow. just i've never had any problems with them and and the variety of patterning and colorations that you get out of them i mean a lot of other snakes will produce a variety of looks to them but the Pueblins. I mean, I've had clutches come out of the Playblins that are Oreo morphs. Some are Halloween, some are aberrant, some look normal, some are sockheads. I mean, a huge variety. And that's just off of one pair. And the other thing that I've noticed is I have a normal looking female that produces the best looking reduced reds. Some of my best holdback Halloweens came from this normal looking female. And each successive year after that, they get cleaner and cleaner. Whoa. With the same male, with the same male. So her first clutch, I have holdbacks from her first clutch that still have a lot of red, but they look like a Halloween more from the top, you know, because the bands don't go all the way around. But then her second clutch, even more reduced reds. And I have holdbacks from uh, 
last year that are almost perfect Halloweens. You know, absolutely, just a little touch of red on them. For, for the people that, that don't know what a Halloween morph is, would you explain what, what that phenotype actually, what, what, what so, a bubblet has to have? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've seen posts of animals that people are selling as Halloweens, and I'm like, oh, come on, mine are better than that. But, you know, I, I don't call them on it. <laughs> from, from, from my perspective, a Halloween morph, if you will, or a coloration pattern of a Puebla milk snake, a normal Puebla milk snake typically has full tricolored bands around it. You got red, black, and yellow, right? And they have those yeah. patterns, red, red touching, red on black, venom black, a non-venomous snake. Yeah. So they have these full... From from their their belly scales all the way around, full bands all the way around them of those three colorations in in that kind of a pattern. A Halloween morph is where and, and a normal playblend is is generally the black, red, and white colors. It's a, yeah. kind of a light white, a little yellowish maybe. An apricot Halloween is black, red, and an apricot color, a little bit more orangish yellow, and that's where you get the apricot. Just like a a normal Honduran milk snake is red with the other bands that a tangerine is a tangerine, more of an orange color. So mm-hmm. a Halloween Puebla snake for my, my most humble, and, and I'm just a jack amongst giants when it comes to breeders, <laughs> you know, but from my perspective, a, a true Halloween Puebla milk snake has the black and the orange colors showing and some of the reds, but the reds progressively start to reduce to where some Halloween morphs are just black and orange. There's no red left. Maybe there's a touch around the neck. To me, that is what you would call a Halloween morph. An Oreo morph is a normal-looking Pueblin with reduced reds just like the Halloween, but instead of the orange, they have the traditional white and black kind of color. And that's what you would call an Oreo because it's black and white. So that that's my opinion on those. And I was really intrigued by the clutches that my female was dropping that demonstrated that, that displayed those color patterns. So I started holding back. And I believe it's like a line-bred trade. It's not... A, a heterozygous trait like albinism it's it's a line bred trait i believe that if you get the best looking halloween and breed it to your best looking halloween theoretically the the clutches they produce are going to be nicer more refined looking halloweens it's like a high white uh, california king snake not an albino but a high white it, it perpetuates itself the more and more you line breed it mm-hmm. i believe so question for you and this is when I've got my own theory, you know, because we mm-hmm. talked about that, it seems like milk snakes haven't gotten much love. Now, you know, we joked about them you know, th- that they haven't been getting love on this program yet, which right. is why we want to talk about them. But you know, when I think about walking around at a reptile expo um, or really seeing animals posted online for sale, it, milks just don't seem to have the popularity that they used to, uh, or in my opinion that they should. So like if we, and I I get that this is very arguable, you know, the statement I'm (laughs) about to make, but if we lined out all the Lampropeltis, right. Uh And just showed them to a lay person and said, pick the five that you think are the prettiest three or four of them are probably going to be milk snakes. Right. Snakes. I I agree. so with that being said, it's why do you why do you think king snakes seem to be so much more popular than milk snakes? I, I've got a theory, but I want to I want to hear from you. You know, I, honestly, Clint, I think I think part of it is if you're a new 
wannabe snake owner and you question a snake group on Facebook, hey, what's a good starter <laughs> snake? You hear corn yeah. snakes and king snakes. Yeah. yeah corn snakes, true. California king snakes. You don't always hear Playblin milk snakes and other milk snakes because most people has this, have this misconception that milk snakes, oh, those get big, like a Honduran. Okay, yeah, Hondurans and black milks can get bigger. Playblins generally are smaller than typical cow kings. Right, right. right. But I think it's because they're often the go-to when somebody's wanting to start out. Um, and I think their exposure has been limited. I mean, I'm up in the Northwest, and I've been reptile shows up here, and I have been for the last five years. But five years ago, I was going to shows in, in Oregon and Washington to acquire new Lampropeltis that I wanted to. And I, and I, I crap you not, I could not find milk snakes or playable mm-hmm. milk snakes. A whole mm-hmm. bunch of ball pythons. I mean, even hognose uh. snakes weren't all that popular. All I would find walking around is ball pythons, boas, and uh, arachnids, you know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so, and even now, five years later, later, my partner, Tony Lanzi, from up in Washington, you might have heard seen him around on Facebook. He and I have been going to these shows with the Pac Northwest Reptile Show pretty consistently between here in Puyallup and Oregon, back and forth, two or three times a year. And we still have the monopoly on king snakes and milk snakes. Nobody, everybody that comes to our table is like, oh my gosh. And I go with a wide variety of them. I go with the adult parents of hatchlings that I have available. Also a lot of display animals. And people are like, whoa, what is that? Is that, is that poisonous? That's what they say. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a non-venomous Puebloan milk snake. And so I think their exposure is increasing. I mean, it's different. It is different, certainly in the Northwest. And if you were to go to, Tinley or somewhere down in Texas, where I think that the colubrids, kings and milks are a little bit more popular. But again, not even as much with the milk snakes. King snakes, yeah, but I think I think that exposure has just not been the same for milk snakes. And, yeah, and I don't honestly, I don't really know why. Yeah, it's because I sure. think because the part that surprises me about them are like with rat snakes, for example, right. So many of them hatch out ugly and grow to be <laughs> yeah. gorgeous that you yeah. have to know what you're looking at. But with most milk snakes, they, yeah, the way the way they look as a baby is how they're typically going to look yeah. as an adult. You know, right. so they're already gorgeous, which you think would you know would boost it. My, I guess, my theory on why they haven't gained more popularity is because of how spastic babies can be. You yeah. know that that they are a much more nervous. You know, kind of snake than especially uh, Pueblins. They they are. Uh, yeah, my Sinaloan yeah. hatchlings are kind of chill. Even my Hondos that I've produced are pretty chill. I think a lot of that is also genetics from the parents because mm-hmm. my adult Hondo is really chill, and his hatchlings are like, "Hey, what's up?" You pick them up, they're like, "Hey, what's going on?" And they're just kind of hanging out. I pick up a Pueblo and they want to skydive off my down the stairway. You know, they're like, "Ah." <laughs> what well, I've also found. I was gonna say what I've also told anyone, you know, whenever they, like, they come to the shop and they're wanting to hold a milk snake, you know, and say, you know, can, are they nice? Are they going to bite? I'm like, listen, milk snakes don't really bite. I mean, they can anything with a mouth can. Yeah. The thing to know whenever you pick them up is they're going to want to get away from you and they are going to poop on you. Go into it knowing oh, that. yeah. that's a fact. Oh, yeah. It's going to happen every time. Well, and I've, 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 I've exercised that theory that you're talking about, Clint, at snake shows. When I bring hatchling Pueblins, they're like, oh, that's a pretty snake. What is it? And you tell them, yeah, would you like to hold it? And I'll pick them up and I'll say, now I'm going to hold it for a second first and I'm going to show you why. They think you're going to try to eat them. So, And I tell them snakes usually have three phases. They're either hungry, curious, or scared of you. And that, those are the reasons why they potentially could bite. But I'll like slinky them from hand to hand. 
And even even with my hatchling play balloons, it takes about five to ten seconds, and they quickly realize that I'm not going to eat them. And then I'll let the, the the potential customer hold them, and I'll tell them, yeah, just give them support and just be calm. I, I tell them, if you're calm, they're going to be calm. So you, you really got to take into consideration who's going to handle them. But, yes, inherently, milk snakes that come from the jungle genetically are predispositioned to be scared to death of you because mm. everything in the jungle can eat a baby snake. Frogs, mice, hawks, monkeys. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. You know, you, you pick you pick up a hatchling, Riverside County, California king snake. They ain't afraid of nothing. They're just like, hey, what's up? Yeah, they, they don't have this inherent fear. Um, but hatchlings are little little creatures, and we as humans are huge. So I really try to share with people and educate them at these snake shows, even how it works a little bit. So so there it becomes go. a positive interaction for them. Because if they I'll get jumpy, you. it's gonna it's gonna scare them, and they're not gonna want to do it again. You know. See, I love your approach. I'll say typically at most shows, you know, I, I try not to get baby colubrids out too often. You know, it's right, right. You, t- look at them through the deli cup. And, you know, if it's somebody who wants to hold a baby milk snake, I go, not a problem. I just need you to take one step back from the table because I got dark black tablecloths and I'd rather oh, yeah. that stuff <laughs> not go all over my table because yeah. yeah. it's going to happen. You right. know what I mean? Well, oh, yeah. But, It'll uh, be a mess. But I also have like like the the sire or the dam Puebland there, and so let me get the adult out because he she's really chill, yeah. and then that'll give you an idea of what they're like when they grow up. This is a full grown adult, and they hold them just fine. And I said the babies are a little spazzy just because they're nervous and they think you're a predator. And a lot of times the little kids are like, "Oh, okay, I understand." And I really try to educate people on it. You know, they they have this inherent preconceived notion that it's going to spaz out and run all over him. And it's, I'm just like, well, you're a lot bigger than this little baby. He thinks you're going to eat him. So, but the Pueblins are really easy. You know, like I said, I mentioned that they're so easy to get feeding on frozen thawed. And I always start with frozen thawed to try to get them. I don't rehome any of my animals until they've taken frozen thawed consistently at least three times. I won't even post them on morph market or put them up unless it's another breeder that wants to buy them wholesale right out of the egg. Yeah. That depends. There's circumstances, but I don't take a snake baby hat or hatchling to the show with me unless they've eaten consistently that many times. So, Well, it's definitely exciting to hear how into Pueblins that you are, as well as the number of mutations that you're working with. You know, I, I think back and Pueblins and Sinaloans were the first milk snakes. And I got I've got one of each at the same time. Back, and we're mm-hmm. talking 30 years ago, um, eh, 25 years ago. And right. now you'll see Nelsons mm-hmm. and you'll see Hondurans. If you're lucky, right. you'll see blacks. Um, you know, but it, it's funny because the, those were the staples. The Pueblins and the Sinaloans were the staples for so right. long, but now they're just not out there, you know, or it's certainly not what you're working with. You know, mm-hmm. you, uh, you'll see someone post right. a picture of a great looking sock head or something like that, that they have, mm-hmm. but you don't see them for right. sale. You don't see them available. No. You don't see them on tables. So, you know, I, I will say that that's it's exciting to hear, you know, that you're working with that. And for the listeners, I mean, if you're looking for a new project and you're looking for something that you don't see every day, but is something very easy to work with and, and right. rewarding, I mean, give Chad a holler here because th- these are some nice stuff. And if you've not seen what these look like, Google it. Because the Halloweens are gorgeous. The Hypo Pueblins, I love the look of the Hypo Pueblins as well. Yeah, they, they got, got a nice look to positive them. look to them, you know. Well, like uh, like I mentioned to you guys earlier, I, I acquired some het, 
het hypos and a visual hypo recently. And I'm going to try to incorporate some of that into a few of my side projects with the Pueblins. But yeah, they're impressive animals. The, the husbandry is as simple as it can be. Um, and they don't get as large as like a Hondo or a black milk mm-hmm. snake. So you don't need that 40 gallon breeder tank for them. Right. I mean, most, most of my, my Pueblins would be content for their whole life in a 20 long. And that's plenty of room for them. They got room to yeah. climb around because they're they're two and a half, three feet long, if that. You know, they don't get as as long as those other other species of milk snakes. And they're just beautiful. They're gorgeous. Even the wild caught type looking Sinaloans with their red and black and slightly yellow ivory bands are beautiful animals. They're just gorgeous, just that way. Can, can you define a sockhead? I've I've never heard of this before. So sockhead refers to uh, mostly Pueblin milk snakes, but really any milk snake that has bands around it. But the first okay. band that's closest to their jawline is essentially looks like it's missing. So there's a longer section behind okay. the head of, of so the like base color. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, like the red. So that band that you typically see shortly behind, you know, just right behind the jawline is not there. It's further back. So it looks like they got a sock over their head. So as as, cool. as it's as it stays, a socket, it just looks like the bands are missing. Unless you're wearing those old sport socks from the seventies, then you'll have yeah. all kinds of stripes. But that's what a socket <laughs> is. And you, and you can you can get you can get some of that look. I've heard some Hondurans referred to as sockheads, but for the most part you hear about that terminology with Pueblins. Correct. But, yeah. Yeah, but some Hondurans will have that that characteristic. I mean, I have a my one of my male sin alone milk snakes is what's called a VP, a vanishing pattern. And most, mm-hmm. almost all of his bands aren't connected or aren't complete. And so he could theoretically be referred to as a sockhead, but it's really not the case. He's a VP, and those bands that are closest to his jawline only come partially up his sidewalls. You know, they're, they're hardly there. So a lot of differences, but they, that's kind of what it refers to, Zach, is, is that, that characteristic. The, while you all were talking, I was just sitting back learning – I got Morph Market over here. I'm searching the names as you're looking. Like, do that, guys, if you can. Um, mm-hmm. so- I, I have I have <laughs> Pueblins and Sinaloans up posted under Gordon Gordon Reptiles on there right now. Oh, they've, they've been kind of idling. <laughs> they're, they're they're idling right now, but some of the ones we're talking about, I have right here in front of me in my hatchling rack. Very cool. Nice. So then, it, those are the the morphs and in, in, in the the mutations you're working with with the Pueblins. Um, right. How about your uh, Hondos? What do you because because I it, listeners know I hatched out my first clutch of Hondurans and mm-hmm. we are we're going to end the episode with feeding tricks for babies because you've already insinuated everyone on this <laughs> podcast right now has had a little bit of hatred for baby Lampropeltis that did not want to eat. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, oh yeah. So we're definitely oh, yeah. hitting that. At the, that's a lot, our, our closer conversation. But um, but I was I was like thrilled with i still am thrilled with them because every single one of them has just eaten like there there were one of the baby one of the baby ghosts was being a pain in the ass uh and now she's not and and she's pounding them and i'm actually might be ready to move those things on because some of them have had like eight meals now but anyway there you go yeah they're ready yeah just talk a little bit about the hondurans you're working with if you don't so mind. when when I started, yeah, when I started collecting snakes again, you know, I already talked that I, my first snake was a Florida king snake male, and I still have him. The second mm-hmm. one I got was a was a hypo tangerine Honduran male. Um, mm-hmm. So hypo, you know, being the the lightning of the darker pigmentations, you know, for those that don't know what a hypo is, 
it's a reduction in the melanin, right? Yep. Um, and a tangerine is the orangish color instead of the typical traditional red of a normal looking Honduran milk snake. So he was a bright orange with uh, some yeah. some very light vanishing type patterns, hypo dark bands around him. So I got him. His name's Ragnar, by the way. You know, because I'm a Vikings fan, so you know King Ragnar. We have <laughs> yeah, fun with it. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's he's right behind me, and you can yeah, see we, the Ragnar poster. How about say I can see the, the yeah the poster behind. Yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do the posters and stuff for for security for the snakes. They like to feel yeah. close. But anyway, um, we I, I regress a little bit. So as I started building my my Honduran collection, I acquired a female for him, who's also a hypotangerine, and they're the first one that I bred. They've bred two years in a row now. A real no problem. Last year was a smaller clutch. This year was about 12, so the clutch size got a little bit bigger. Babies generally take to uh, feeding pretty quickly after their post-hatch shed. Um, mm-hmm. I also have a trio of albino Honduran milk snakes. I have a male that who's a bicolor, meaning he's just got red and white aberrant patterns on him. And then I have two female tricolors, albinos as well. So I have a trio there. A lot of my animals, I'll try to keep a trio, at least one male to two yeah. females, because a male can perpetuate the species with multiple females. I have some that accidentally ended up as two males to one female, <laughs> and it's like, oh, crap, so I got a male to get rid of or need to get another female. So I have the albinos. I have the hypotangerines. I also have a pair of um, higher black ones that have some wonky sidewalls that are all red. The bands don't go all the way around. It's what there. you would call aberrant patterns and very high black quantities of coloration. So it's a really kind of unique look to them. You don't see a lot of those. And I had a female that was a normal that had some of those higher black tendencies too. So I got a side project with those where I'm going to try to perpetuate that characteristic and the colorations is a higher black and, and the aberrant patterns. And I also have, um, I have a pair of uh, pearl Hondurans. You, you mentioned ghost Hondurans. Yep. I have pearls, which are three, three genetic traits. I believe those are, Hypo, Amel, and Albino, if I'm not mistaken. So yep. they're the, like a combination of a ghost and a snow. So it's a triple, triple head uh, animal. And they wow. look like just a, a completely white animal with albino eyes. But there you can still see some of the lighter bandings and stuff. So it takes a few extra generations to get a pearl morph going because you got to braid one back to the other and all that good stuff. And then I also have a trio of what are called Bailey's Hondurans. There are species of Hondurans that. I believe somebody worked with that line bred trade, and it really is the Bailey's refers to a very aberrant type of patterning. I mean, there's some I've seen some of them that are just a stripe, like a long dorsal stripe, mm-hmm. and then some that are nothing but splotches randomly all over the body with real high red. Some of them are referred to as a Deadpool morph because they have those uh-huh. colors of like Deadpool. So I have a trio of those, which are not very common at all. I mean, they're comparable to the Sanders line of of Hondurans. Uh, I think um, there's a gentleman with the last name of Sanders that kind of perpetuated a line that was similar. But the Bailey's Hondurans also, from my perspective, they don't get as big as most of your other Hondurans. They get maybe four, four and a half feet. They don't get as large, Um, but they're really unique in their look. Their heads look a little bit different. They look like a Honduran. So I have those and those because of the lack of commonality for that species. They're pretty high value. I mean, my, my adult female yeah. who is a visual Bailey's, she's probably worth 1500 bucks, you know, and I got her on mm-hmm. some really good trades. Um, so really unique. So so I have, I think, in total about 
uh, I'd have to do the math real quick, but somewhere around 10 or 11 Hondurans. Wow. And maybe three or four different types of lines. I think I have the, the hypotangerines, I have the albinos, I have the baileys, and I have the high black project that I'm wanting to work on. So four different types, if you will, but I think in total I have about 11 of those. So so with these then, with, with these different, with the Pueblins, with mm-hmm. the um, Hondurans, w- when we get eggs, we're going to segue now to just incubating eggs. Yeah. And then rearing babies and getting babies to eat because that's definitely the, there was a downside to lamps in my opinion compared to like rat snakes or pitch ophis. It's that uh-huh. the lamps seem to be a royal pain in the butt to get to eat. Sometimes, Some, sometimes yeah, they right. nail them right off the bat. But like I had the mystery clutch of black rat snakes that we talked about last go. I've got these thorn mm-hmm. scrub rats that Chris Painshaw gave me that I just like for nerdy reasons. I've got corn snakes. Right. Every single one of those babies ate like right off the bat. And it's the lamp right. that are like, nah, I'd rather die. Um, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, but uh, when you get the eggs, let's start with eggs. Do you yeah. do anything special with incubation? Like we, we've had guests on that with these kind of more temperate colubrids. We'll, we'll say things mm-hmm. like my snake room holds at 80 degrees. I just put them in a tub with vermiculite up on the top shelf. We're done. We've also had people on that have said, nope, and, and I think this is where Clint and I fall. If we can take a variable of failure away, we're going to, and they're going in the, you know, in the, in the incubator, and here's what our incubator looks like. So, like, mm-hmm. what's your approach when it comes to incubating eggs as far as medium, temperatures, things like that? So my, fir- my first few years when, when I would have a snake uh, produce a clutch of eggs in their lay box with the, the, the sphagnum moss, uh, I would wait for them to lay, and then I would put them in a little shoebox tub with uh, moistened verbiculite and mm-hmm. put them in my my monster cooler incubator on oh. in the other side of the house, on the yep. non-sunny side of the house. And the roll of thumb that I used was 82 degrees, and generally 59 to 61 days, they'd start pipping. Yeah. You know, it worked. Yeah. It was like clockwork. Um, I, I use a, a herps or not a herpstat, but a vision electronics. Uh, yep. Thermostat with a, a heat a ceramic heat emitter in the one. I have two incubators, but my larger one is a converted monster cooler. Still has the yep. light behind the little monster logo. It's kind of cool. Yes. And my wife is gracious enough to let me put it in our bedroom during hatching <laughs> season because she likes the light and it's a little too warm in the snake room on the other side of the house. And uh-huh. so it seems to hold the temperatures really good. That's generally my rule of thumb, and I've had a lot of success. The mortality rate has been really low. You're always going to have one that starts to go sour a few days in, but then yeah. the other one. So basically 82 degrees or around 60 days. Now last, this actual season, I had heard of, I had had a few animals that came out deformed that were more, if not fully, uh, fully developed. And I had a few reputable breeders say, maybe you should try uh, incubating a little bit cooler, like 78 degrees. And generally speaking, that means that you might go 70 or 75 days or whatever. And I tried that and I didn't really see, any difference in my success rate with the hatchings of the eggs. The only thing that I saw was that my first three years of learning the timings and when to pull the saran wrap off the tub, it threw me off. If anything, I was like, well, shit, when are they going to start pipping? I don't know <laughs> um, because I'm incubating cooler. So next year I've, I've determined that I, I believe I'm going to go back to this, the 82 degrees because I've had pretty good success rate with that. Yeah. So once they start pipping out, you know, you start seeing poking their little heads out. 
my wife and I will like peek in on them all the time. And it's like, you know, her, she and I have stayed up till two in the morning when we got like four or five pip wanting to see them come out further and see what they look like, you know, cause That's sometimes cool. it's like, it's like a box of chocolate. So she, mm-hmm. she and I stay up way later than we should sometimes when they start <laughs> pipping. And then generally speaking, when they pit, when they, they're all starting to pip, I will put a little water dish in there so they can soak or get a drink if they want to. And I'll wait for them all to hatch out. And then a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll put them in a different tub with paper towels, moist paper towels, get them out of the vermiculite. Cause one of the things that I've seen is, when you get a few overachievers that come out, they start crawling all over the other eggs. Uh-huh. And now I've heard that that stimulates the other eggs. It encourages the other babies to come out. But I also have seen that they're dragging vermiculite all over the place, making a <laughs> yep. big mess of everything, pushing all the albumin out of the eggs prematurely. Mm-hmm. So I, I, as they start to hatch out, I'll put them in a second tub with a wet paper towel and a water bowl. And I'll kind of leave them in there for a few days. Sometimes I'll wait till they start shedding, kind of keep them cohabitating in there. And then from that point, I'll move them into a hatchling rack that I have for all my hatchlings. Or I actually have two racks. So I, my capacity for hatchlings with the two racks, and I, I can't think of the name of it. I have to stand up, but it's, uh, it'll hold 60 of the pencil tubs oh, or cool. 30 or thirty of the double-wide tubs, which mm-hmm. to me that works really good because as they start to sell and move out, uh, some of them get a little bit chunkier and bigger. Some of the Hondurans will, and so I'll move them into the double-wide tubs. And then if there's holdbacks that I've decided, you know, even though I tell myself every year I'm not going to, um, I'll move them into seven quart uh, shoebox tubs later out of the hatchling rack. And so as far as getting them feeding, my own experience with my lamps, the, the, the biggest challenges that I've had have been with gray banded king steaks, right? You know, they're known for being very difficult. You got a lizard phantom, things like that. Yeah, exactly. So. As far as my, my, my milk snakes, especially the playblings, which generally will take frozen thought almost right out of the egg, it seems. Sometimes you'll have to try a live one once in a while just to get them stimulated. And I've had a few one-offs here and there that won't take anything. So you, tail, you, you mouse tail feed them for a little bit. It kind of keeps their digestive st- uh, system stimulated. That seems to help. So it's, they're all the traditional tricks. Um, I've, I've had to boil you know, flash boil pinky mice for my gray bands before, and that works like a charm. The one trick that I use that is really good, I, I've known other breeders that will keep like Western fence lizards, freeze them, and then you thaw them I out and you put a mouse. so much. You, you put a mouse <laughs> pinky inside its torso, get that smell all over it, and they'll take it. So that's basically what you call a scented pinky with lizard scent. Um, and that generally works really well with species like Zonata, um, California king snakes. The same technique works good with geckos for snakes from the east, you know. Mm-hmm. And then montane king snakes, you can do that trick with like side blotch lizards, things like that. Because you know, in the wild, they're basically hatching when the little lizards are hatching, so they're genetically wired already to find that scent appealing. I think that's why the boiling the pinkies works for some species is because it takes away that mouse scent. I've heard of guys washing them in Dawn dish soap, and, and I've heard that it's been very successful. The biggest tricks I use are either tail feeding for those little finicky little buzzards that won't take food right away, trying live. But the one trick that I found, with I keep uh, I keep some live fence lizards because I like them, and I didn't want to freeze them anymore. The first year I did that, and then I actually had a friend, uh, I acquired some live ones, and I keep them. They live for three or four years, maybe a little bit longer. And I just, I actually, when I clean their enclosure, I use a little sifter and I keep their shed skin and I huh. put it in a little baggie in my, in my snake room. It looks like a bag of meth, really. It's a bunch <laughs> of pieces of lizard skin. 
but and I, I tried I tried one day to get a video of it. And it was kind of hard, but maybe next season I'll do that. Where, like with a with a, a little milk snake, even playable milk snakes, it, it happens to work sometimes. But you put a frozen pod in their face, and they look like they're hungry. They'll flick their tongue. They'll come uh. up to it, and then they'll immediately back their head off and like, "What the hell is that? I'm not interested in that." So I'll turn around and I'll I'll dip the pinky mouse's nose in some water to make get it wet, and I'll put like a little match head piece of western fence lizard skin on there stick it in their face and bam i'd I'd say nine out of ten times it works killer it works really good so i mean i've even had friends up here in the northwest that i've gave a given a little bindle of lizard skin to help them with their picky gray bands you You know they're like hey can i do that to a friend in the midwest yeah can you do that to a guy who's (laughs) in indiana i mean yeah i (laughs) mean it works really good asking for fence lizards (laughs) because what i've made is i've made uh the the soups so to speak I've I have done that too, yeah. a house gecko soup frozen. Uh-huh. I have anole soup frozen. Anole. And I have skink soup frozen. But I need fence lizards or fence lizard skin, either or. For, so, for, for what species would you gray be band. intending for gray band? Yeah, I, I found that that worked with my gray bands. I, I have a, a clutch of gray bands, and there I got nine of them. And the other day I did, I, I flash boiled the pinkies and put a little match out of uh, fence lizard skin on there. And eight of the nine took it right off the tongs, whereas they had they hadn't okay, taken so anything beforehand. You just hurt him. So, <laughs> how much for one of these little baggies, buddy? I mean, that's. Oh, are you, I can are you shoot looking you my for my address? Are you, are you looking for a sixteenth or an eight ball? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I got a little bit. I got about a, a, a finger across, but I have three lizards. But we we could probably work something out. Just to see right, how it works man. for you. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe Please. we could do a trade. You could send me some anole skin or something. Or some I'll send you anoles. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I found that I found that the lizard type, and I haven't experimented with it very much, but the lizard type has to geographically be related to the snake type that you're trying to feed. Because I tried the, the the western fence lizard skin for my goini hatchlings, and they didn't want nothing to do with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. But I have a breeder that does them in Arizona, and he uses a knoll or skink scent. It, it it has to do with their genetics and yeah. what they're used to. Yep, uh, from where they're at, right? So you got to be creative with that. Knolls no. would work real good for anything from middle of the country east, and western fence lizards might work pretty good for everything from the middle of the country west. I mean, it works like magic for cow kings for sure, and it seemed to work pretty good with the gray bands for me. Yeah, I definitely need it for these gray bands. Uh, I'm working with about 40 of them. I think I've got oh boy. maybe five or six of them going, something like that. Oh, boy. So it's an yeah, no. uphill battle. And, and sure. I have the I have OBX Kings, which I didn't oh, yeah. know. Yeah. Anoles. Yeah. Anoles I well, because I So I'm sending the... them to Clint because he has the anoles. Because <laughs> right, I was just right. like, I'm done. I, I was trying to do Thunderdome with them. Please don't get upset, listener, listeners. Where I was just like, "You're all going to live together," and the you know we're going to do some natural selection up in this here piece, and the strong survive and the weak perish. And I'm going to get one that eats the smaller. No, that, that nope. There, there's no interest in that. And so I just don't have. I don't have an old. It's really weird because here in the Wheeling area where I grew up, mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. You could, I could go and get a hundred anoles and probably spend a hundred bucks. Like they were nothing, they, they were not expensive or anything. 
There is not a freaking anole to be found in the tri-state area of the Upper Ohio Valley because I went out looking for them because I was like, okay, fine. And in a weird way, that's probably a good thing because we don't need to be like wiping out green and old oh, populations, yeah. you know. So I don't want the listeners to think like I want to <laughs> bring that back because I don't. But, um, you know, Clint's got a shop full of this stuff and I don't. And these aren't at school. These are at home. And, uh, yeah, so uh, you want OBX Kings, hit up our good good – Brother Bartley here's got them because <laughs> they're yeah, leaving my house. Well, and it was kind of a you know I, same thing. I was trying to feed pinks and wasn't having any luck, and then I uh, I had some pinkies that I was offering the gray bands, and I dipped them in the anole you know soup, and uh-huh. um, you know I think I got one to take like that, and the rest of them didn't. So I had all these pinkies, and I'm thinking, well, I've got these you know uh, OBX over here that aren't aren't feeding. Let's see what happens. And I want to say all but one took yep. it. You know, so next so year, that's what I will have a Knowles on hand. Yeah. I'll get you some. I, I can some. get a Knowles here, but I got to spend 12 bucks at the local PetSmart for one. That, <laughs> that's what I've been yeah. looking at to get one. You know, another trick that I've used for both of you, and maybe you've used it, is uh, day-old chicks. Sometimes when I know I'm going to be feeding some of my snakes that are being finicky, I'll, I'll thaw out one day-old chick. Because I usually will feed those. I'll switch those out with my big animals. But if I'm doing my yearlings and my pueblins and stuff, sometimes just pulling that Dale chick out of the warm water bowl and getting its wetness all over a smaller mouse hopper or a pinky totally intrigues the snake and they'll they'll mm-hmm. slam it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's yeah. actually worked with a few pinkies or a few hatchlings as well. You know, you, they're just like tired of the same old smell of, you know, lizard scented boiled pinkies. But you put something in there that smells a little bit like a chicken and that stimulates something yep. Uh, primeval in them, I think, you know, and I know that works pretty good with some. And I know there's been successes. Uh, some people will t- try a piece of raw chicken, you know, dipping that, touching that on the oh. pinky or tuna yeah. juice. I've heard that. I've never tried yep. that one, but I did have a few successes one year, about three years ago with uh, hatchling turtle food. I had a, oh, I had a little packet. Of, I had a little, <laughs> like a little packet of hatchling turtle food, almost like the flakes. Yeah. I had it in my tackle box because I started using it for trout fishing because I looked up the ingredients to the feed that the hatcheries feed the trout up here in the Northwest, <laughs> almost the damn same ingredients. So I started yeah. putting, when nobody was catching trout at the local lake on power bait, I dip it in a little bit of that turtle hatchling <laughs> food, and we were catching more fish than the ospreys. So I thought, <laughs> maybe that'll work with the snakes. So I, I tried putting a little bit of that on a few pinkies, and I had one snake take it, and I was all excited. I thought, yeah, I found the secret ingredient, but it was a one-off, and the rest of them were like, what the hell is that? Get away. But, you know, I, I try different things. I mean, it, it worked for the trout fishing really well, and it worked for one snake, but I think that was just a one-off random fluke. Well, so, see, that's, you know, I, I think sometimes – I was going to say, yeah, sometimes I think it's just a different smell intrigues them, and that's really why I, I did the, the house gecko, the anole, the skink, sure. the, and I have all these in like the little condiment cups, you know, broke yep. down in, in the freezer, and it's just yeah, – so yeah. whatever I'm working with it, you know, I've, if I've got to try something new, then I, I've got these scents, you know, that to, to work with, and that's – I'm going to do the same thing with a chick. You, you, got, have you have all to these be flexible, suits. you know, I mean – you know, people say like when you're going fishing and you're not catching something, the fish are still telling you something, right? Yeah. So I think it's the same applies to hatchling snakes. If you're trying a thing and it's not working, I, I keep little notebooks of what I tried and what didn't work if they refuse something. That way, when I'm going to feed the next time, I can reference those notebooks for the hatchlings and say, okay, I tried a scented one with you last time and you didn't like it. 
So then sometimes you do things where you take them out of their, their tubs and put them in a little deli cup in a dark corner and leave them in there with it for an hour. Some breeders have used, you know, put them in a paper sack. I've had luck with that too. A snake that doesn't mm-hmm. want to eat in its normal little enclosure. You put it in a little deli cup in a dark corner of the room with a towel over it. You come back an hour later and the food's gone. So sometimes you got to have your bag of tricks that you're, you're ready and willing to try at any given time just to help those animals progress a little bit. And in his last case resort, I force feed tails to them if they don't want to take it. Usually, you know, you hold the snake gently but firmly and force the tail, you know, a quarter, an inch, half inch down their throat, and they start taking it right away. The jaws start moving. It's like, okay, they'll do that a little bit. And a lot of times that leads to a frozen thawed. And I've also done the holding the snake with about a, an inch of its head sticking out and just tease feeding it, tapping it on the nose with a pinky. Mm-hmm. And out of aggressively, you know, being aggressive, they'll bite it. Yes. But then they'll be like, oh, what's that taste? And then next thing you know, one side of the jaw moves forward. The next one, you're like, okay. And then you gently release, let go of their, their head. They start taking it all the way down. So you got to have a huge bag of tricks, you know, and be willing to try any one of them to find what works and what doesn't. You know, and then they, then you get the ones that just won't thrive no matter what you do, and they end up, you come in one day and you pull the toe up and they're gone. You know, it's like they're dead. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, I always feel bad even though, you know, I know that I did everything that I could to try to get them to thrive, but mm-hmm. it's Mother Nature. And these babies in the wild wouldn't have survived either. You know, we're we're actually intervening by captive breeding and, and providing more support to these animals that they normally wouldn't have. So mm-hmm. half of these clutches may not survive in the wild anyways. You know, so we're, we're actually, you know, when we, if we cut an egg when they're not pipping like the rest of them, maybe their egg tooth didn't form. Well, in the wild, Mother Nature already predetermined they weren't going to make it. Mm-hmm. So we're intervening by the actions we take to help them thrive. So you're still going to have some that hatch out, and no matter what you do, they're just not going to thrive. You know, and it's frustrating as a breeder because, you know, I care about every last one of these little things. And so you mm-hmm. put in that effort. And that's one, that's also obviously for me when people are trying to haggle on prices and you're being very fair with your prices for your animals. So, look, it's not about the, the inherent value of the animal. It's about my time that I invested in prepping and breeding and caring for and nurturing yeah. these animals. That's why you're paying 200 bucks plus shipping for this animal. It's not because it's worth 200 bucks. It's worth that much to me because I put that much of my blood, sweat, and tears into getting it there. And that's, you know, these, these baby snakes that become available don't just magically appear. We as breeders put a lot of effort and a lot of our lives and passion into making them a thriving snake that's ready for its new home. And some people that are just buyers don't really recognize that. And that can get yeah, kind no. of frustrating. I, yeah. I don't, I don't think you, I don't think you can understand what a breeder goes through with these troublesome feeders sure until you've done it and like it's almost like you're paying for for the neuroses that you have to undergo as the breeder <laughs> because I will be driving to work and I used to think about work and these this is my biggest year with Lampropeltis and I'm like uh-huh. fretting over the damn snakes and I'm like oh wait a minute <laughs> does, does my kid have something today I don't know if Colin has something today, but there are seven freaking <laughs> Odorbeck's king snakes that need to eat tonight. Like, <laughs> like that. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I, this is this year has definitely given me a very different perspective on why some of these animals cost the way they are. Because you, you, know, you have to manage your time to care oh, for yeah. them. And, and with with falsies, you know, you have to scent. At least I do. Um, I very rarely will a false water cobra take a fuzzy. If you just put it in there, but they're like the easiest things in the world. You go down to the market, you buy a frog leg, sure, uh, sure. you put it in your ninja blender, turn it into a frog 
Yeah. Uh, smoothie, dip it, like marinate them in that for an hour. Um, then offer them. And it's like 99%. Like we have, we've made over a hundred false water cobras here for all the different projects and everything. And we're keeping mm-hmm. all this data. Cause I just told the kids, like there's papers on top of papers on top of papers here. Oh, yeah. If we just take data and I asked them like, right. wh- what percentage of our false water cobras are not eating? And it's like, not even 2%. It's like, we have had five. Meanwhile, I have produced 30 OBX Kings and I have two <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, so I get it now. I, I this has been a very yeah. eye opening. And I know that if I had the damn anole, it would work. And I probably haven't worked hard enough to find the anole, yeah. but I have a Clint. So I can be like, Clint, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> and so we're going to do a lateral to Clint. <laughs> and so that that's, you know. That, that's it's how it it's all those be. behind the scenes uh-huh. things that people don't see. I, I, I think a while back I posted <laughs> on Facebook, I had cleaned my lizard cage and I had on a little paper plate, a whole pile of lizard feces, little turds, dead cricket legs <laughs> and lizard skin. And I was going through there with tweezers, picking out the lizard skin, putting it in my little plastic baggie. And I took a picture of that and I said something about it on my post. I said, here's one of the less glamorous parts of being a reptile breeder and the reason why we charge what we charge. It was a pile yeah. of lizard crap and dead crickets <laughs> that I was picking out all the little pieces mm. from. But it gave me a little baggie full of lizard shed that I can utilize for certain animals that are being finicky. You nice. know, the reason I started doing that trick was for some agama that I have and uh, they were being mm. finicky as hell and that worked, worked wonders with them. And that now they're Beautiful. clobbering. I just, my female just clobbered uh, two medium mice, one of my females. So it's like, yeah, try nice. to fatten her up before well, she goes down because I'm going to give her a chance to breed next year. Well, well, we're getting near our. Oh, hold on one second. I got this crazy view there. Okay. Um, we, uh, <laughs> we're getting near the end here. Um, we have our, our question it is the ghost of Matt's question. That's what we're going to call it because he's always with us, even though he's not <laughs> here today. But Matt started asking people before he he bounced um, to to greener pastures. Uh, what the last question is like? What do you see herpetoculture being in two to five years? Is it is herpetoculture going to grow? Is is it a, a good environment? A bad environment? Needs improvement? Not as bad as people say. Just give us the the Chad Gordon perspective. On where herpetoculture is today, and where it's going to be I, in a I, year. I, or two. You know, from my my most humble opinion, I think, you know, first of all, I'll say it is what we collectively make it, right? And that includes the younger generations who think they know more than us old school herps. Um, I think it includes the impact that governmental or regular, I'll say, regulatory agencies may have on the trade. And they're already starting to dip their toes in that water and trying to, to and have been to regulating things to where, you know, you can't have native snakes in Alabama if you live in Alabama kind of thing. I think there's a lot of unknowns with that part of the culture that could detrimentally impact our ability to be breeders and to perpetuate our hobby and our passion. I think if people keep a straight head on their shoulders, I think if people stop posting stupid pictures of free handling <laughs> venomous snakes and getting bit and thinking like that gives you bragging rights, it makes us all look bad. I think um, people stirring up 
crap storms online over somebody's choice to use plastic tubs or uh, glass tanks tarnishes the hobby for everybody. So I think if we all, all of us that have passion, a passion for what we do, including the younger generations, we as, as breeders and keepers need to be nicer to each other to help mm -hmm. the hobby look better and more favorable. I mean, if there's all a bunch of riffraff and hoopla and it's all cattywampus because we're bickering amongst ourselves about who should do what and how you should do it, it's going to put crosshairs on you for regulatory agencies to say, look, they're out of control. You know, we need to step in and intervene and do something. So I think, I think we live in, in unique and weird times for in a whole bunch of facets, not just reptiles. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we need to exercise the same kind of caution and tread lightly with things if we want it to continue to move forward in a positive manner. I mean, that's a kind of a general philosophy for life really but i think i think overall the reptile hobby is pretty good i think there's a lot of advocates out there to try to help i mean when i do these reptile shows i also do wood burning like pyrography pieces oh, yeah. you can check you could check out my uh gordon pyrography on facebook but i do a lot of reptiles and i take those to the shows with me people buy more of those sometimes than hatchlings i'll do cobras you know and all that kind mm -hmm. of it's all hand burned wood but the organizer of our reptile shows he always buys a few pieces from me and puts them on the on the raffle table for for us arc and so any funds raised for these pieces and other donations all the proceeds he donates directly to them so they can continue to fight for us and our rights to keep and breed reptiles so anything we can do to help with donations for groups or folks that want to help us out and promote what we do as a positive thing I think we should all pull together and help out as much as we can because they're going to help us, you know, to be able to continue to do what we love in this country that claims to be free and, and give us that those choices to do things that we want to. But keeping reptiles really in today's climate isn't much different than your choice of religion. It could be scrutinized or taken away from you by the powers that be because they think they know best. You know, it's, it's good for the, it's good for the better, you know, it's good for the, the everybody. So I don't know. It's 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 interesting times that we live in. So I think we just need to be kind and understanding and patient with each other and continue to help educate each other from a first time snake owner to to a veteran breeder that thinks uh, he doesn't have to chill out. You know, I think we we yeah. should hold each other accountable so we can keep our, our passion in a positive light, not a negative one, because the negative light is what's going to help take it down if, if we don't uh, do or say the right things. You know, that's kind of well said. My philosophy. <laughs> Very similar to ours. Absolutely. Pretty much is. Oh ours. yeah. Yeah. All righty. Well. Well, this was well, wonderful, excellent. man. Thank you. Um, yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned the wood burning because I just completely spaced on that. Uh, could you say one more time the the, the your Facebook page for that because he does some really cool stuff. Yeah, my my Facebook page for the wood burning is called Gordon Pyrography. It's uh, spelled P-Y-R-O, <laughs> pyrography, basically. Yeah. And that's what it's called. And so basically, I have a background. I used to paint billboards when I was a young lad, when I wasn't out catching snakes in California, and that was before <laughs> computers. So it's basically uh, wood-burned uh, art of animals, landscapes, grandma, dogs, reptiles. Um, and I've done a lot of commissions from other reptile lovers of Snakes that have passed away. I've done, you, you mentioned the Gila monster earlier. I did one mm -hmm. for a guy named Eric Rogers and he bought it up lickety split, but it, 
it's all done by hand and I use a photograph and actually burn it on there. But you can go on my Facebook uh, business page, Gordon Pyrography, and see all of my work on there, which includes a crap ton of reptiles. There's cobras and bearded dragons and tegus, boa constrictors, uh, green tree boas, uh, all kinds of reptiles. I do, I do, I've done a lot of reptiles, but I also do anything else. Hit the, you can hit me up with a message. If you got something you'd like me to commission for you, send me a picture and I'll give you a quote on it. But, um, it's fun stuff. A lot of scale detail and reflective eyes yeah. and everything. So check it out and you'll see what we're talking about. Yep. And, and your, your reptile business on, a morph market. Your business name is is Gordon Reptiles, correct? Yeah, yeah, Gordon Reptiles. That's my logo. But I really post. I don't post stuff on Chad Gordon's Facebook page, other than family okay. stuff. Most of all of my posts of reptiles and hatchlings that I'm offering up and stuff are on the the most common snake and reptile pages like Colubra Elite, uh, Triangulum, Milk Snake Maniacs. Just your basic ones on there, and I post a ton of pictures on there, just like other breeders do all the time. I'll post pictures of planned pairings coming up. I'll post pictures of hatchlings that have gotten their eviction papers. You got to be careful with the way you word things on Facebook. You can't mm-hmm. say for sale. So looking for a new address or whatever. So, you know, a lot of us breeders will do that that way. And I've seen a significant amount of success doing it that way, more so this year than on Morph Market. I got like, I don't know, 20 something animals on Morph and haven't had a whole lot of hits on it this year so far. And we are near the holidays. I posted them up probably three weeks ago. So I just leave them on there because eventually people hit me up. So, Gotcha. Okay. Well, it was uh, wonderful having you on. If people want to get a hold of you, is it is it Facebook? Is that the best way? Is there, Yeah, is you can, you can uh, message Chad Gordon on Facebook or message me on Gordon Pyrography. But Facebook, just look me up on Facebook and send me a message if you have an interest in any of the animals I have. I still have about, I'm staring at about 40 of them, I think, that, Half of them have eaten three times at least. So, um, but yeah, just hit me up on Facebook. All right, uh, shoot me a request or something. Okay, and if you uh, if you want to get a hold of me, um, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, Zach Loafman on Facebook. Uh, always looking for for grad students. Um, we'll probably have a a Clinton Zach episode coming up here shortly because it's been a while, and I, I have some stuff to talk to on that. So, students, listen. Um, and uh, the, if you are, uh, like I said, the, the kids that are coming to, the, to West Liberty through the podcast, this has been wonderful. So uh, it's happening. You're not the only one. Like, reach <laughs> out to me. Uh, uh, like I said, I, I might ask to talk to you on the phone. I'm not a creeper. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, that's me. Where can they find you, Clint? Uh, you can find me, uh, Clint Bartley, on Facebook, uh, Metazotics. On Facebook, Metazotics LLC on Instagram. You can also check us out online, metazotics.com. And as a reminder, uh, anyone who's listening to the show, if you go to metazotics.com and decide to buy anything that's animal or product, uh, use the code CC Radio at checkout and you'll get 15% off right now. Beautiful. Your so, website's looking pretty good, Clint, by the way. I've been on there a few <laughs> times. I like it. Thanks. Appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. Good job on that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Chad. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen. Yep. This has been episode number 42 of Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. So whatever time of day it is, morning, afternoon, night, um, I hope you're having a good one. Later. Later.